Hello, this is John Lennon of the Beatles, and you're listening to the number one station in College Park, WMUC. That was very interesting because I said that I always imagine somehow I'm going to end up going to space, but never in my wildest dream I imagined that I would be on an Oscar stage. He's wired in. Sorry? He's wired in. Is he? Yes. How about now? You're still wired in? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. I don't know what you're going to steal the Declaration of Independence. I don't come from you. Hello, streamers. By the way, with Amir K is what you're listening to today. We got a great guest for you today. We've been waiting a long time. My next guest is the CEO of XPRIZE the first self-funded woman to go to the International Space Station, as well as the first Iranian in space, Anusha Ansari. Here's my conversation with her. Hope you guys enjoy. Uh, Anusha, thank you so much for coming on the show and really appreciate it. Thank you, Amir. Great to be with you today. Um, so first, just wanted to ask, um, this was actually one of our listener questions as well. We had a bunch, so I'll just ask him first up. When you first went to the International Space Station and you looked out of the window, did it meet your expectations? Uh, what was going through your head and how did you feel? It's a great question. Um, I dreamed about going to space uh, since I was six, seven years old and uh, always surrounded myself with pictures and images of Earth from space. And this was my fascination. And, and I always just, uh, you know, in my head, imagine how it would feel like to be in space and be able to see our planet from space. And um, when I got the chance to do that, I was still in the Soyuz. I was on this 48-hour uh, uh, trip to the International Space Station inside this little capsule of mine. And it was right after launch. Uh, so it was like about 30 minutes uh, to 40 minutes uh, after the launch. And um, we had just been told that it's safe. We can open our um, uh, straps. And, and I floated up to the porthole that was next to me. And, and I, I, the first thing I saw was this amazing, colorful, uh, glowing planet in front of my eyes. And I uh, I got very emotional. I, I didn't expect it. I just uh, felt this surge of warmth and energy and the energy of life. And I knew I'm inside a capsule. I couldn't feel any heat or anything, but it was this uh, feeling of, of um, something that's alive and it has this amazing positive energy from it. And, and it got me crying and 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 laughing at the same time because I was crying you know my tears started floating in front of me and that made me laugh and giggle and then I started crying again <laughs> so it was a mix of emotion and, and uh it wasn't that it met my expectation I guess I didn't have an expectation because I thought well I know what it looks like but uh what was unexpected was that emotional Sort of reaction I had to actually being able to see our world from space. So I guess it exceeded my expectation. So you went up with the uh, with the Russians with the Soyuz mission, correct? Yes, yes. I flew with the Russians. Um, this is how uh, after the shuttle program uh, was uh, retired, um, almost all the astronauts flew 
on a Russian Soyuz mission until recently when SpaceX started flying astronauts to the space station. And, uh, and now, you know, there may be opportunities for others to also build capability to go um, to take astronauts to the space station. And we may have a new space stations all together with what Jeff Bezos just announced. Yes, um, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll space station too. And we'll, I will get to that in a, in a, in a second. But I, will, I just wanted to go back uh, a little bit um, and ask kind of what that process was like um, to get selected for the Soyuz mission. And uh, one specific question from our viewer, Nader, wanted to ask what the Cosmodrome is like. Yeah, so um, I, I didn't go through the normal process of, uh, you know, entering a uh, government space program. So um, I got actually to go to Russia and, and, and train as a cosmonaut uh, because uh, there was this opportunity to train as a backup. Uh, someone else who was flying didn't have a backup and uh, they asked me if I wanted to be his backup. It was a Japanese businessman who was flying. And just because I wanted to be close to the astronauts and I wanted to go through the history of Gagarin and the Russian Space Agency and all that, I thought this was an amazing experience. So I signed up to go there not knowing that I will eventually go to space. I knew, I knew at some point in time I would, but I didn't know this would be it. So when I got there, um, I decided that this is a chance of a lifetime and I'm going to train as if I'm going to space. So I, uh, I was training as hard as anyone could and, and uh, loved it, loved the journey and, and the training and uh, ended up um, three weeks before the flight when we had completed the training, the person who was supposed to fly developed kidney stone and uh, ended up not being able to fly because medically you get disqualified. And that's when I got the chance to make a decision, do I want to go or not? And it was instantaneous for me as soon as I said, do you want to go? We think you're prepared and you know you, your qualifications have surpassed what we need. Uh, I was, you know, immediately like, this is what I've been waiting for all my life, so I have to go. Um, so I did say yes, but the training in the Cosmodrome and in the, Star City, which is about 45 kilometers outside um, Moscow. Uh, it was very uh, interesting and it was a big part of my journey because I was completely isolated away from um, all the normal things that you get used to in your everyday life and an opportunity for me to sit really um, be very focused on one thing I was doing, which was training. And because of that focus, it allowed me to see, um, you know, life through a different lens. It was like everything was more colorful, more meaningful. And, uh, you know, you didn't have access to even some basic things like uh, hot water was a commodity. Take, being able to take a shower every day was uh, not a given. And, uh, you know, many food choices that I, I, I had was not available there. So I, I adapted to the to the new part of life, but also met some amazing people, people who've been there during the Gagarin days and and learned so much from them, learned so much about the history of the place and developed a totally new appreciation for for the Russians and the Russian space program. Yeah. And and how long were you in the International Space Station? 
Um, I was 11 days in space, uh, two days in the capsule and nine days on the space station. Wow. That's incredible. Um, as an engineer, you know, you launched in the Soyuz rocket, which as you're alluding to is, you know, incredibly historic. Um, did you notice that any air conditioning quality in there or uh, what was the technology like inside of the, inside of the rocket? Did it feel um, aged or? Oh, definitely. Um, so Russians believe in if it's not broke, don't fix it. So as you can imagine, so it's been flying for many, many years, a very reliable workforce of the space program. And, uh, and so things resemble a lot like the Gagarin days, you know, not much has changed. And I think um, the one I flew on still was using DOS system, which uh, you know, uh, very, very ancient. And then at least uh, later on, I think they, they um, changed that, uh, upgraded <laughs> eventually. But a lot of things are very old, very um, manual. Um, and uh, you get that sense when you sit uh, inside the, the capsule. Uh, so it's, uh, it doesn't look anything like the inside of the SpaceX capsule that these days you see on the screens in the news where everything all these amazing, you know, panels and everything is electronic. Um, still a lot of things are automated uh, in space program because you have to do very fine calculations all the time. It is automated, but there's manual overrides and there is a reliance on someone who knows what they're doing to completely manually take over. And you don't see that in, in the current SpaceX design. Right, and I wanted to, uh, get to that because since uh, you know you were the first self-funded woman to go to space in 2008, we've seen a huge advancement in uh, privatization and uh, space tourism. Um, do you see the privatization of space as a concern or as a good thing? Um, and one of our listeners, Atticus, asks, uh, "What is the environmental implications of of that?" I see um, as uh, privatization and commercialization of space as a great thing, as a great thing for space and as a great thing for humanity, uh, because uh, one, uh, the rate of innovation has increased tremendously. Uh, I think the size of the new, this new commercial marketplace that didn't exist at all when we launched our competition in, uh, you know, in, in early. Uh, in late 1990s and early 2000, um, it's about you know 500 trillion dollars in, in, in by 2030. So it is it is a growing marketplace and uh, it's creating jobs. But um, there are a few other reasons why I'm excited about it. One is through this um, through our competition, XPRIZE competition, and the activities that had sort of inspired the domino effect that it had. The cost of access to space is being reduced drastically and is continuing to be reduced. What that means is that it's creating a, a new place for innovation, an opportunity for innovation. I look at it as early days of internet where before Netscape and, and the uh, ease of access and development on, on internet, it was only banks and universities and research scientists who had access to it. And when it, when it was opened up, then everyone from every corner could innovate. Now, we couldn't ever imagine 
all the different ways we're using the internet for payment, cryptocurrency, for um, you know all the applications for entertainment, gaming, education, everything you can imagine is on internet now. Um, and at that time, we couldn't imagine this world, but it was created because just the doors opened, the opportunity of the playground that's accessible was created and innovators jumped in and innovated and created this. So I see space as a similar thing with lowering the cost of access, people can now imagine or reimagine certain businesses in space to gain access to the resources of space for benefit of humanity and to bring those back to our planet and help our environmental issues, energy challenges, resource challenges, which is usually cause of war and a lot of problems we have. So I see that as a tremendous opportunity. Uh, mm -hmm. I know that our current uh, launch system uses chemical rockets and they, it has a, a negative impact on the environment, but the volume uh, of uh, launches, the, the amount of um, emissions that a launch provides is insignificant compared to uh, all the other industries. So um, I do believe still that, you know, we need to innovate, uh, but, uh, and I think we need to come up with new propulsion systems and, and as I will be an advocate for it, but I wouldn't stop space exploration and, and the opportunities that create because the benefits really outweigh the negative impact. And I think there are other ways we can actually reduce emissions through changes in the other industries. Right. And uh, over the summer, I had an opportunity to meet one of my uh, friends' friends who works for SpaceX. And over the summer, they were talking about the Dragon program and uh, we just w witnessed last week that they had two simultaneous rockets both land perfectly after doing hard landing. So um, are there any other specific uh, space innovations that you've seen recently that um, catch your eye that our audience should be know about? So um, one of the areas of space, so there's two parts when you talk about space, there's human space program and non-human space program. And I think we'll see a, a much larger and faster rate of innovation in non-human space programs. And one area that uh, I think we may be benefiting from and not even knowing it is uh, a lot of technology writes this Moore's law, which is basically says that electronics, anything that involves electronics, uh, uh, their, capa their, their capabilities and, and computing cap capabilities increases on an exponential curve. And at the same time, the cost gets reduced at an exponential rate. What that means is a lot of things gets miniaturized and gets affordable. That's why we have nanosats and cubesats and all these imaging and sensing capabilities um, that we never had before. And universities, even high school students can create these and launch it. We have so much um, sensing and imaging capability now around our planet that's giving us tremendous amount of information about how our planet is changing, what's changing, where it's changing, and what's happening around the globe so we can really do a better job of um, getting a handle on, on, on the issue of climate change. Um, these days you see uh, on Google and, and also uh, on some of the weather applications, you know, the level of prediction of, uh, you know, the weather has tremendously increased. And all of these are because of these capabilities that uh, are benefiting from what we're doing. Uh, we have these um, different companies um, launching 
constellation of satellites to bring communication to every corner of our planet. So that's another advancement that's exciting. In the future, I think uh, we'll see a lot more in the manufacturing in space and uh, harnessing the energy of the sun for the for powering our resources here. And um, yeah, so I, I think there will be a lot of new innovation in that area. Um, speaking of innovation, um, I know you are the CEO currently of XPRIZE. Um, wanted to touch on a couple of the prizes that are semifinalists and finalists you guys announced recently. But first, would you be able to um, give an introduction to XPRIZE for our audience? Uh, we have a lot of engineering majors and a lot of STEM kids who would certainly be interested. Yeah. So first of all, uh, you can be anyone, any age, anywhere. But we love students because they're very engaging and innovative. So you don't even have to be an engineer to compete for one of our prizes. We have people who have zero engineering and science background participate and be team members or form teams. You just need to be passionate about solving the problem where we're asking you to solve. And then the rest you will figure out and manage. But um, basically XPRIZE is an organization that identifies the biggest challenges in the world, largest, most complex problems in the world where uh, enough innovation or funding or activity is not going in that area to solve it. And we formulate um, large competitions, global competitions, and we would a prize purse with a set of parameters that you need to meet in order to solve the problem and win the prize. And we ask you to actually build the solution. So this is not a paper exercise. Um, the competitions usually take about you know, three to four years. Uh, our prize purses is anywhere between 10 million to 100 million. We just this year announced 100 million dollar um, carbon extraction competition um, to take CO2 out of the atmosphere or the oceans uh, and uh, keep it out of the system forever. And, and that is a very exciting competition that we just launched with support from the Musk Foundation. Uh, but we, and that even had a special category for students. So uh, definitely look us up and, and engage. We do competitions in health, in climate and energy, biodiversity and conservation, education, space and exploration, uh, food, water, waste, and AI and quantum and other deep learning and deep um, tech areas. Uh, so where do you see uh, in terms of the this realm of innovation and technology where do you see is the biggest uh demand for uh new college graduates uh, i know a lot of my listeners are seniors and trying to figure out what they want to do um a lot of them you know being in washington dc the biggest thing is you know the defense industry um but what are what are some other places that uh are in need of innovators and in need of technology whole world is changing and it's interesting because post-COVID actually rate of change and rate of adoption of new technologies has significantly increased uh, amongst the entire population around the globe and uh, the whole um, environmental issues and climate change is another area that has really forced us to rethink uh, our entire ecosystem how we um, you know, our energy systems, our food and waste systems, um, uh, everything around us, it's in need of uh, innovation and, and re-engineering in, in some ways. So 
there is no um, shortage of opportunity and, and defense industry is definitely not the only place. If you look at just the uh, sustainable development goals that UN has set um, to achieve by 2030, we're nowhere near to achieving any of them and we do need the innovation. And there are a lot of funding. That's the other side that if you're an innovator, there is no greater time to start your own company. You don't have to work for anyone. You can uh, really gain access to impact funds and capital. Um, there are incubators and, and other means of forming a team and getting support you need um, to go build something by yourself to really, you want to innovate you can innovate as a entrepreneur and as a startup as well and uh, so it's a great way to find what you're passionate about so that's the first question you need to ask yourself what problem in the world you're most concerned about you care most about um, and a lot of times are things that are close to home something that has uh, you know impacted you or your family or your society your community your city and those are the best ones that you can actually go after because you will have a personal experience, a story and a passion to go solve it. Um, I think artificial intelligence and machine learning and data is part of uh, every aspect of every business these days. So uh, gaining some um, knowledge about how these technologies are used today in every part of the industry um, and, and how it's, uh, helping us achieve great things, but at the same time, it's uh, the challenges that it introduces so you can avoid those pitfalls and make sure your solutions are comprehensive so you don't um, get into the data gaps and biases that sometimes is created. But uh, there's tons of opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and one person asked, uh, you know, they're asking which region of the country do you see as the most up and coming in terms of technology. Obviously, you probably want the people to come on the West Coast. Um, you know, Miami, Florida is a big one as well, down in Texas. Um, which one do you see as kind of? Question, and if, uh, if you had asked me this question before COVID, I would give you a different answer. But uh, right now, what's happening is people are going where they want to live that gives them the living environment that they desire at the cost they can afford. They, you can live anywhere and work anywhere you want. That has disrupted the workplace, by the way, completely because people are, you know, companies are thinking, what can they do to make sure that people want to work for them and stay with them? Because the options for someone who's seeking a job has all of a sudden expanded. So there's actually a shortage of skilled workers and it's becoming harder and harder for companies to hire people. So the question uh, is not where technology is growing. I think uh, it's what area of technology. So if you have an expertise that's needed, you can live anywhere in the world. Uh, I, I do know that Silicon Valley has a lot of venture capital that's sort of pours into the venture capital. So it's like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy there. Uh, I'm actually totally against it because it's uh, it's developing sense uh, and, and becoming like an echo chamber that is developing only certain mindsets. And I believe there's opportunities for diverse ideas and diverse approaches to problem solving and what are some of the important things um, that can come from other parts of the world, even internationally. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, touching on labor um, and, you know, trying to get people to come and work for companies, a lot of concern that a lot of people have, and I know you've um, spoken a lot about this in the past, is the artificial intelligence um, and how it's going to affect the, in, the entire way our society functions. I was going to say the economy, but even bigger than that. Um, what are your thoughts on artificial intelligence and what uh, concerns do you have? Yeah, I, um, so artificial intelligence combined with some areas with robotics capability and other technologies will definitely replace a lot of jobs. I think people uh, in the early days were talking about, uh, well, it will generate as many jobs that, uh, as, as it will replace. Uh, and it was, the thought was also that it will replace um, uh, low-skilled jobs. And, and there will be more high-skilled jobs. And I think for a period of time, for a transition period, that would be true. But ultimately, where AI can play a great role is like, why do we need radiologists? Because the radiologists basically can look at an image and see some anomalies. And AI can do that much better than the human eye. So there's not just low-skilled jobs. Actually, some low-skilled jobs will be more difficult to replace because there's a physical aspect to it. And the high-skilled jobs will be much easier to, to replace. Uh, I even think that, you know, eventually we don't need with GPT-3. Right now, you can tell the system what you want and it would write the code. So you don't really necessarily need to learn how to code. So um, I think we need to think about this whole thing differently. We need to accept the fact that in future, the, the way we define a job, which is a you know, five days a week and nine to five, that concept has to be changed and go away because there won't be enough jobs for everyone on this planet. And job, having a job and career plays a huge role in defining who we are. So we're used to, you know, asking each other when we meet for the first time, like, what do you do? That's sort of how we get to know each other. And what if you don't have a job or you don't have one job and you're doing like three different multiple small jobs that are very different. So we need to rethink how society understands and believes in that and how would our society function in a world where, uh, you know, this whole hourly wages, profits, and the way our economic model works has to be retaught because there won't be enough jobs for everyone and businesses can be successful without it. So there has to be a different model that, that uh, will still enable our society to continue on and, and not create chaos. And policymakers have to start thinking about it now because these are long-term plans that they need to put together. Right. And you bring up an interesting point. You know, I'm an economics major and I'm always in not externally, internally yelling in my head uh, when we're going over all these models and the labor labor market and stuff. And I'm like, well, they're all going to be replaced by robots in five in five years. We have to, you know, we have to update our models and stuff. Um, Absolutely. That that's very important. And you as a young student, you need to remind your older professors that, hey, change is happening much faster than you think. So you can't wait anymore and say it's going to happen in the future so that the future economists worry about it. It's going to happen now in our lifetime. Right, right. Uh, one one uh, listener question uh, asking uh, about labor going on in, in Mars. I know you said that most of the innovation is going to be uh, 
you know, uh, automated uh, that, uh, without humans needed, essentially. Um, what would what would be the effect of people on Mars societally? Um, are they going to develop their own identity uh, or? Um, it's a good question, you know, um, because I I actually see that as an opportunity. It's rarely um, uh, that we get a chance to build a whole new society from scratch. And I think we need to think about whether it's moon or Mars. Mars is easier because moon, you're still in too close to Earth. But people who go on Mars, I think um, they can think of themselves as pioneers. You know, they can build a whole new society that has its own rules, own regulation and, and functions completely different and independent of Earth and, and our models here. Um, now, would that be possible? Uh, it, these are all very good questions that needs to be worked out. There's so many questions about space law and, and policy um, that uh, is difficult to answer. Like, you know, if you um, are a private, uh, you know, mission, uh, land on Mars first. Can you say, I own Mars? This is my property, you know, this is, I own the entire <laughs> Uh, who knows? I, I don't know how we will enforce those regulations, but uh, it would be interesting to go look at early societies and how they were formed and, and sort of apply some of what we have today and, and sort of bring them together to, to do some scenario building. Right, because if, uh, yeah, it was a quote in the, uh, in the Martian, you know, it's space pirates, because you're in international waters, technically, that's probably going to need to be updated a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I what I what I read recently was, uh, you know, the obviously the legacy of colonization has continued forever on this planet. Um, however, I've seen, uh, you know, theories of the way we will colonize Mars is uh, similar to the way the British did back in the day. Obviously, that was a lot less ethical because there were people already there. Um, but where you have a private company. Uh, come in and set up the roots and then the government take take over essentially the operation after 10 to 15 years. Um, do you see that as a good thing? And then do you see uh, sovereign countries fighting over territory on Mars? It's a good question. I, I actually I'm thinking of why would someone who settles on Mars, as long as they build a self-sustaining society, if you are depending on on Earth, um, then you need to, you have certain obligations or things you have to do. But if you truly establish a self-sustaining society on Mars, um, which could be the case after you're, you're set up, then you can cut ties. And then why would you want to, or would you be open to being ruled by people on earth? So um, if you decide that you, uh, and when I say you, it's the collective people who are there decide on, they want to run their societies completely different. They don't want to make the same mistakes that we've made, um, the same problems that we created on earth and they want to start completely new. That may be an approach, but then, you know, you need to also think about, well, what about the second wave of people who come? Would they, would you be open? The, the immigrants now, would you be open to uh, welcome them to your society or they're going to go and settle and set up another completely different society with different rules. I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a very 
interesting question that we can you know gamify and play some mm. second life type <laughs> scenarios with. Uh, so in addition to being uh, the first self-funded woman in space, uh, you were also the first Iranian to be in space. Um, and I remember watching the Oscars in 2016 um, during, uh, you know, when the Trump uh, Muslim ban was in effect. Uh, director Asghar Farhandi, uh, who directed Furushande, also known as The Salesman, won the Oscar for Best Picture, or sorry, for Best Foreign Language Film. Um, and you actually gave the acceptance speech for that. Um, would you like to talk about how you were approached for that or um, yeah, that, what that, happened? <laughs> that was very interesting because I said that I always imagine somehow I'm going to end up going to space, but never in my wildest dream I imagined that I would be on an Oscar <laughs> stage because I'm the furthest thing from anything entertainment and, and creative. Uh, but yeah, I was... Um, I was uh, uh, Firuz Naderi and myself, both of us were asked by Mr. Barhadi to represent him uh, at the Oscars. He had received the nomination and uh, didn't know if he's going to win because this was his second win actually. And he said he just wanted someone pre pre present there to uh, sort of be there to receive and also uh, deliver a message that uh, also included in it his protest because he could have come he, he didn't have an issue getting a visa but he was not coming as a protest to to what was happening at the time uh, and i i didn't expect for him to win i didn't expect for me to be there uh it all happened last minute like within a week um before the oscars and uh, being there with Firuz was a dear, dear friend and an amazing human being. Um, both of us were uh, shocked when we were asked to go on stage and, and receive the Oscars for him. And um, he had written the message. Um, so I did my best to deliver it in his words. And, and, uh, and it was great experience to be there. Um, what was the reaction, if, if there was, um, in Iran to you being the first Iranian in space? It, it, I would say mostly very positive. I think uh, at the time, especially um, everything in the news was negative about Iran and the pictures that were portrayed about Iran and Iranians, I should say Iranians more than anything else in the media is always skewed toward the, um, you know, the fundamentalists and uh, the smaller, very small part of the population. So. Uh, I always try to, whenever I have the opportunity to um, actually talk about my uh, background and heritage from Iran, because I want people to see a different face of Iran as well. And I'm not the only one. There are many like me here in the US, other parts of the world, and many more like me in Iran, inside the country. And, and they just need the right opportunity to present so they can actually uh, soar to great height, uh, heights and, and be able to demonstrate what they're capable of. So it's just creating those opportunities and moments for them to, to shine. And uh, I, I wanted the world to see that. So people in Iran saw this as a way to show the world that, hey, Iranians can do great things. And here's um, someone from our country who has been able to uh, do something that was seemingly impossible uh, and, and she's done it and we can do the same. So it was positively received, especially by young people and especially by women in Iran, I should say. Yeah. Um, 
Another question related to your time on the International Space Station. <clears throat> a little bit specific, but I thought it was a great question. Um, what was the makeup of your crew while you were there? Um, what was the makeup of the Soyuz and in terms of nationality? And Yeah, I, um, so on, on the Soyuz, I was with a um, uh, American Spanish uh, NASA astronaut, Michael Lopez Alegria, and uh, my other crewmate was a Russian cosmonaut, Mikhail Turin. Uh, when I arrived on the space station, there were three other astronauts and cosmonauts up there. So uh, one um, a German cosmonaut from European Space Agency, um, one uh, other Russian cosmonaut, and uh, one other American astronaut, Jeff Williams. Um, and in terms of those different space programs, you mentioned the European space program. I know India has one that's up and coming. China has one as well. Obviously, the United States um, is coming back with the Artemis project, uh, which for listeners, that's our mission to the moon, um, as well as the Russian program has kind of been always around. Uh, which one do you see as having the most uh, potential for growth? And do you think the private industry is um, you know, bigger than all of them? I think um, it's a, a really good question, uh, and I haven't been asked this before, so I haven't have, have I haven't been giving it a lot of thoughts. But one thing that's happening uh, is the Chinese space program as is advancing at the rapid rate because just uh, they're not constrained by the type of funding that uh, the NASA or European Space Agency gets, um, and here the budget is given, it's cut, it's given, it's cut, so programs start, stop, start, stop, which makes it difficult to complete. And space programs, you know, have at least a 10-year lifespan, so it takes time um, to really complete something. Uh, so uh, Chinese uh, space program doesn't have uh, that, uh, that problem, so I think they can really move things fast. Um, there's also... Um, I was recently in Dubai, so UAE had launched their space program and they're advancing rapidly and, and uh, modestly, but uh, a lot more young people are involved and, and there's a lot of innovation. Uh, when the Apollo program was launched here in, in the United States, the average age of people involved was 25 years old. So that's why they were able to, uh, you know, to land on the moon in, in a decade. Uh, we can do that right now. <laughs> the yeah. Artemis program has been around more than that. So um, it, it shows you when you have young people, they're willing to take risks, they're more um, innovative and they don't have, they're not set in their ways. And I think any space program that will have more young people involved and, and uh, in um, uh, able to make decisions will be good. That's why I think the commercial space program is where we will see a lot of really interesting innovation in low Earth orbit uh, and um, where we see some really exciting things uh, in the uh, government space programs would be uh, really going further. So towards Mars, beyond, and also just exploration of the rest of our solar system. Uh, another another uh, viewer asked, um, which besides Mars and the moon, which is the next uh, destination for space travel, uh, human space travel, I should say. Yeah, um, it's, it's it's challenging enough to go to Mars and yeah, this is it, very it's, far. 
Yeah, it's uh, we have to. So here's one thing that I, I will maybe speak to it more generally. Um, we need to think about human body and ourselves and what do we need to do to make it more resilient for long duration space travel. So before we go anywhere, we have to figure out and solve the problems here. Um, it may be augmentation, maybe gene editing, maybe all sorts of things that will make us more resilient as a spacefaring uh, uh, species. Um, and then we can look at, you know, uh, the moons instead of just the planets. And, and there are some interesting, um, you know, moons with, uh, you know, potential of life right now. And uh, I think it would be very interesting to see if, if we can uh, really go that far. Yeah. Uh, so to touch on more recent news, I know I teased it earlier, um, but uh, your XPRIZE recently announced the finalists for the Ana Avatar XPRIZE competition. Um, would you like to just uh, say kind of what the technology is yeah. there and uh, maybe a little bit about the finalists? Yeah, so uh, the uh, Avatar competition is about uh, bringing several types of technology together and integrating them, things like AI, VR, AR, uh, haptics, sensing, imaging, uh, AI, all of it together. And the point of it is to have someone be able to transfer all of their senses to a remote location through an avatar. So you would be wearing a suit, for example, here, and, and there will be a robot, an avatar, and some other location. And you would control the system and, and do things but when you're doing things, you actually would feel, have the feelings of actually being there. Um, so it's a challenging competition. It's very different. It's not like the, some robotics competition where you have autonomous robots doing things and doing backflips and things on their own. It's really about combining that with control of a human being. So it's done in, in um, the use of robotics is done with the human factor, but also the transferring of the senses is another big part of the challenge that this problem solves. So we had a lot of great teams during COVID, which was difficult to get them all there. So we're still having a few more teams, um, you know, submit uh, their solutions. But uh, a lot of international teams uh, from all over the world who are um, have exciting solutions. This was just semi-finalists um, selecting the semi-finalists. So uh, next year, we're going to see who's going to actually complete their solutions and win. Uh, so uh, we, uh, we spoke over the summer um, in terms of uh, talking about artificial intelligence. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to... Uh, since I got to talk to you again, I wanted to ask you uh, specifically about, um, you mentioned there is a need for a black box in artificial intelligence. Uh, would you be able to explain that uh, for the audience? Because I thought it was a very interesting point. Yeah, so, um, so what I meant by that is uh, currently with machine learning, um, many things happen where the machines are becoming smarter and smarter with AI, I should say. Um, and, and AI is getting smarter and it's learning as it goes. And uh, there's a data that it uses, certain factors that uh, it learns from, but it's autonomously learning and just making decisions and doing things. And I think um, 
in some ways that is the way that we can advance the technology fast but if there is a negative outcome at the same time the way we are developing these systems we can trace back and tell what went wrong uh, we had a Black Friday where there was a big sell-off, for example. No one knows what happened, why the AI systems that were doing trading uh, decided to sell, for example. Um, so when I said the concept of a black box, is like, you know, on the planes, there's a black box that captures what happened if, if there's a crash. We need to have a black box where certain information is captured that if something goes wrong, we can go back and understand what led to this decision tree that the machine learning system used to take certain action that you know, ultimately did not have a good result. And hopefully we can, instead of just looking back and, and understanding why something bad happened, we can actually detect it even beforehand and see that there are pathways being created to a potentially dangerous outcome because some decisions may be really difficult to recover from in the future as uh, machine learning and AI is used in more systems and be able to detect and prevent that from going there. So some safeguards or some black box at least so we can learn what's happening inside the machine. One day the Alexa will be running our, running our <laughs> spaceships just like the computer in Star Trek. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you because I know you're a huge Star Trek fan. I am as well. Um, we saw recently William Shatner went to space uh, with Blue Origin. My question to you, should it have been Sir Patrick Stewart? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I can't discriminate. I, I, I like them both, but I tell you one thing. Uh, William Shatner actually came to our, uh, you know, I'm sorry, X-Prize launch. He was there at 4 a.m., you know, sleepy, but there um, to drive to Mojave Desert to watch Spaceship One. Uh, launch. So that shows his love of space and, and advancement in space. So I definitely felt he was de deserving and he's inspired so many people like me through his uh, work and, and portrayal of uh, William Shatner, uh, I mean, uh, Captain Kirk. On, uh, Captain Kirk portraying William Shatner. Um, yeah, exactly. If you had to pick the next generation or the original series, though. Uh, so original series is what I grew up with. So I have an affinity for the series. And, and I have to say, uh, I, I uh, like uh, Captain Kirk, but I always wanted to be Mr. Spock. So my favorite character was Mr. Spock. Um, looking back at, at it now, uh, I know there were certain things that portrayals on, on the original series that I didn't definitely, you know, agree with but uh, so next generation was a great improvement uh but i like star trek all of them all of them and I enjoy deep space them. nine everything <laughs> i i i just finished I've, I've been watching reruns and and uh, so i i even watched deep space nine which is my least favorite i, I must admit but uh, always find something interesting still in all the stories yeah i tried ds9 but i instead went back and watched the next generation over again. So. <laughs> um, you actually touched on the Ansari Prize and that was gonna be um, my, I guess, last question We're running out of time here, but um, what was the Ansari Prize? And uh, you know who won and what was the innovation that came from it? So the Ansari X Prize was the first competition that launched our nonprofit foundation. Um, and it was, uh, 
brainchild of Peter Diamandis, who's the founder of XPRIZE Foundation. Uh, he was inspired by the story of Charles Lindbergh, who flew New York to Paris to win a competition called the Ortique Prize and wanted to, because that prize sort of started, kickstarted the whole aviation industry, he wanted to use a competition to kickstart the whole new commercial space um, uh, program. And uh, the prize was $10 million for anyone who would build a spaceship without government funding, go to edge of space 100 kilometers twice within two weeks and have the mass of the vehicle be 90, I think 90% re reused. So you wouldn't build two different ships to go to space. We wanted it to be a viable business model for someone to launch. Um, the 10 million brought in $100 million of investment in um, 26 companies who competed. The winning team was from US, uh, headed by Bertrude Tan, uh, one of the great uh, you know, uh, aerospace engineers of our time. And um, Scale Composite was the name of the company. Uh, Paul Allen invested in that company to build the spaceship one who won the competition. And, uh, and then the, uh, Richard Branson actually licensed the design and built Virgin Galactic. So Virgin Galactic is actually, Spaceship Two is built on the design of Spaceship One that won the competition. That company went public in 2019, $9 billion market cap. And that just shows you why competitions work. So that $10 million solved a problem that everyone said it's not going to be solved. You're crazy. Who's going to build a spaceship in their garage? And uh, and ultimately created at least one company of $9 billion by the whole um, marketplace that's half a billion dollar now and, and uh, sorry, $500 billion now and, and trillions of dollars in the future. Nice. Um, Anusha, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I wanted to quickly end on this quote that I love from you. Uh, it said, it's not too late to use human creativity, innovation, and competition to rewrite our history and create a future for all, for all of us on this planet that we call home. Uh, Anusha, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, would you be able to say a quick uh, sound bite, just so, uh, just for promotional reasons, I just put it in the chat. <laughs> Hi, I'm Anusha Ansari, and you're listening to WMUC-FM College Park, home of By the Way with Amir K. Thank you. Right. Thank you very much, Anusha. Really appreciate it. Thank um, you. Good luck. It's you always well. great to see you. Say hi to your mom. Will do. Will do. Thanks. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Steal the declaration. For this young member of the people. On WMUC in College Park.